0: Welcome to River West, everybody. There's going to be Bibles uh, coming around. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We're going to be continuing our series that we've been in this fall called Living Church. And if you've been following this series if we've, as we have been exploring the traits of a living, healthy church that's just a fire with, with Jesus' passion, with Jesus' mission, we are on word number Four, And we have a fancy little slide up here, right here. So, so far, we have gone through the first three words, Jesus, which is our, our focus here at River West. We're constantly proclaiming Christ, focusing on Christ. The gospel, which is our truth, it's the bedrock. The gospel shapes everything about who we are, what we do. The news that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave on the third day, and with power is bringing his kingdom. That for us, that is our truth that you'll hear week in, week out at River West. And then we got to the word gratitude, where we talk about our response, that as a people, our hearts are filled with, with thanksgiving for what God has done for us and God has called us to be a grateful community. And now we come to word number four and it's the word prayer. And I love that prayer is actually right in the center of this list of the seven words because in a very real way, it's the practice that allows all other six traits to grow and be a reality in a church. And that's why I think the first century church, as Adam actually opened the text last week and showed us from the book of Acts, the first century church devoted themselves to prayer. Because they knew deep down that in order to be a living church, they must be a praying church. That prayer, it's it's a humble admission that apart from God's power We can't be the church that Christ has called us to be. That apart from prayer, River West will never be a Jesus-honoring, gospel-sharing, grateful community that's growing and maturing with mission-minded people that are stepping out to bring Jesus' beauty and his goodness and his gospel to the world. One amen, at least. Amen. Apart from prayer, none of the seven traits are possible. As I was preparing the message this week, my mind was brought back to my very first week on staff as River West's mission pastor, 10 years ago. Celebrating my 10 year anniversary, I'm, I'm balder. I, I, I'm, I'm just as quirky, but I, I remember 10 years ago, I distinctly remember <clears throat> my first week at at River West. And I remember that we were in the old community center next to the pet supply store off Lower Boone's Ferry. Show of hands if, if you know where the pet supply store is. We used to have our offices over there and then the church had just moved into a building off Quarry Road and we were having a staff meeting where we were actually doing a coffee tasting. How many of you guys, you love the coffee here at River West? There was, like, a prayer meeting. People had strong opinions 10 years ago. Mary Halvorsen will, like, agree to this. This is true. And everyone drank way too much coffee, and they were hopped up on coffee from this, like, coffee-tasting thing, and we settled on the coffee that you're still drinking today. So if you enjoy the coffee, it's actually, it was prayer. People were praying about the coffee. I was like, where in the world am I? I came from Colorado. People drink Folgers there. Like, I'm here, and, and people are cupping, and they're going, oh, no, no. And then another person, like, I love that. And there was, like, a debate. It was like the Jerusalem Council over coffee. It was, a, it was I, I realized I'm in a strange place, which is great, because I'm a strange person, too. And so, but we, we actually, I remember after having all this coffee, Guy, Adam, and I, we were hopped up on the bean, And we began talking about what it would look like for our church to live out Jesus' mission in our city and our world. We were just just dreaming out loud about what it would look like to be a community of Christ for the world. And it was amazing. And my heart was stirred. Then on the drive home, I distinctly remember driving by the pet supply store on my way home, and I had a realization that actually terrified me, I realized for the first time that I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to be a mission pastor. I had no idea. Like, I didn't go to mission school. I had never been overseas at that point. I'd I'd led mission trips, you know, to, to, to Mexico. But I didn't have a lot of extensive, like, missional experience. And when I thought about traveling around the world, I mean, truth be told, I don't like airplanes, and I'm a hypochondriac. And I mean, this is true. People that know me and love me know, like, I don't like airplane germs. Like I get in there and I have this thing where I wipe down like the tray and things and then people judge me and then they realize that theirs is just as gross or grosser. And then I'm Christ to them and I pass out like disinfectant wipes. This is what, (laughs) don't judge me. Many of you guys, if you sat next to me on the plane, you'd be like, it is gross. And I'll take one of those. But this is, this is me, and all of my insecurities, I don't know if any of you guys have ever gotten a job or you're hired for a job, and everyone's like, you're amazing, you're going to save the organization, or you're going to do great things, and then you realize, I don't know if I can do any of those things. And especially when you're a pastor, they're all impossible. And so I remember getting home, <clears throat> and I was hopped up on coffee, mind you, and I remember telling my wife, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I don't know how to do what I believe Christ has called me to do here, and I don't know how the church is actually going to live out Christ's mission in our city, in our world. And I think guy's are gonna find out that I'm a hypochondriac and I don't like flying, he's gonna fire me and I'm just gonna work at the pet supply store. That's, <laughs> I'm a bit dramatic. I mean, I did say those things. My wife, Julie, who is the reason and voice of Christ in our relationship, said, honey, um, I think you had a little bit too much coffee, and I think we should pray, and Jesus will show you what to do. He always has. He'll show you what to do, so so don't worry. Settle down. I'm going to pray for you. And so after freaking out and, and everything, my wife began praying. I began praying, and I said, Lord, show me what to do. I really actually don't know what to do. And I don't know how our church is actually going to live up to the calling that you've given to us here at River West. Then one morning, as I was having my coffee in my house, I distinctly remember also opening to Matthew chapter 9 and reading a, a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And it was the Lord's answer to my prayer. He said, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to pray. You pray this way, and I'll take care of the rest. I've been praying this prayer from Matthew 9 the last 10 years, and this morning it's your turn. So, with that, open to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, and we're going to jump in at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is God's word. For the last ten years... I have seen God answer this prayer in awesome, evident ways that honestly just blow me away and just humble me to the core. When I look at the way that God has raised up many leaders from within this church to to go out and, and to do the ministry of Christ in our city and around the world in places like Rwanda and Myanmar and South Korea, and El Salvador, and right here in our city through ministries that serve refugee families and foster kiddos, prisoners, people that have been sexually exploited and trafficked, those that have suffered domestic violence and abuse, people that are caught in addictions and need support and recovery. When I see the harvest that Jesus has done, It humbles me. It gives me a grateful heart. However, I'm utterly convinced, there is no doubt in my mind, that every single ministry that our church has done, that has borne any fruit over the last 10 years, is actually 100% tied to this prayer right here, that myself and our pastors and elders have been praying for a decade. You see, deep down, Christ knows that his church cannot live out his mission to go into the world and proclaim the gospel and to bring his healing and hope to our hurting world apart from prayer. So amidst the pressing crowds that Jesus was ministering to, that desperately needed hope, that desperately needed healing, he turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers, the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, pray. I think it's interesting. It's always struck me that Jesus doesn't say The harvest is huge, but there's hardly any workers. Therefore, go. Therefore, go. Go into the harvest and and get busy, get to work. Jesus doesn't just commission his disciples to do the work that they saw him do, going around preaching the gospel, healing people. First, he says, you must pray. You must pray. You see, the whole chapter actually in Matthew 9, is a setup for this powerful lesson on prayer that Jesus passed on to his disciples. So today, what we're going to do as a community together from this passage is we're going to glean three lessons that will help us become a praying church, a community of prayer. And lesson number one goes like this. Prayer allows us to see the world and see others with the eyes of Christ. Prayer gives us the eyes of Christ for our hurting world. Perhaps you notice, if you're looking back in this chapter right here, that there actually is a catalog of hurting people and crowds that come to Jesus because they don't have anywhere else. To turn, There's a paralyzed man. If you just want to keep your finger right there in Matthew 9, in verse 2, it says, Behold, people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my sons, your sins are forgiven. If you look just at, at the headers right, right after this, after healing the paralyzed man, And forgiving his sin, he runs into a tax collector named Matthew that's collecting taxes at his booth. And he calls Matthew to be his disciple. And then Matthew does something so outrageous and beautiful. He calls all of his tax collector sinner buddies over. And he has a party. And Jesus attends the party. And it's amazing. And Matthew says, Jesus saw Matthew. He saw Matthew. And then the religious leaders saw the sinful crowd. And then there was this awkward tension between Jesus and the religious leaders that was constant in Jesus' ministry. And then there's a father with a dying daughter that comes to Jesus. And Jesus, with great compassion, his heart goes out to this father. And he goes to this father's house. And and the child, it's too late. And they're having a funeral. The child has passed away. And, And Jesus sees the daughter and he speaks to her and he heals her. There's another desperate woman that comes to Jesus with an incurable blood disease. And she sees Jesus and she makes her way. She just threads through the crowd. And Jesus, Jesus knows I have to stop. Somebody touch me, and he makes eye contact, and he sees this woman. Time after time in this chapter, this phrase is repeated, and Jesus saw, and Jesus saw, and Jesus saw. And I think the point that Matthew is trying to make with that phrase recurring here in this text, with all of these stories of of people, hurting people that Jesus saw, is that when Christ sees our world, he's not blind or indifferent to the pain to the hidden hurts that people carry, to the helpless and harassed that feel invisible, that feel crushed by their wounds every day, that Jesus sees and longs to heal every hurting heart. That's the Savior we pray to. That is the Jesus of the New Testament. Jesus sees us and he sees you and I. And while this might surprise you, the same Jesus that sees our hurting world and longs to redeem and heal it actually has a sovereign plan to bring his healing to bear on our hurting world through prayer, through prayer. You see, as we pray together as a church, something supernatural and surprising happens. We begin to see the world and others through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Let me show you something in John's gospel that honestly, I know that pastors are, are prone to hyperbole. This has radically changed the way that I pray. When I read this passage and I started years ago studying the way that Jesus prayed personally and taught his disciples to pray, my prayer life was, was blown up. Uh, at the time, before studying and watching how Jesus prayed and taught his disciples to pray, I, I think that, that the strongest element uh, in my prayer life was really personal, intimate communion between Between God and me, bringing my requests and my needs before God, bringing things I'm thankful for before Him, and interceding and praying for others, lifting up their requests, their hurts, their needs to the Lord. It it was really about personal communion between me and, and God, which is absolutely an element of prayer. But when I watched the way that Jesus prayed, I realized that Jesus' prayer life wasn't just about personal communion. When he prayed, he actually entered into a mission partnership with his heavenly father, where he regularly asked the father to align his heart, his mind, his will, and to open his eyes to what his father saw so that Jesus could do the things that the Father had called and commissioned him to do, and they could be one in purpose and one in mission. For Jesus, prayer was not just about personal communion. It was a mission partnership where Jesus regularly said, Father, show me. Show me who's hurting. Show me what to do. And in John 5, we have a window into that. So look at John 5. And the way that Jesus talks about his connection, his communion with the Father. John 5 in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Is this amazing? This actually is really the epicenter of Jesus' prayer life right here. This is what you're seeing that Jesus regularly asks the Father to show him and reveal his will and his plan. It's why in the Lord's Prayer, we say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy, thy will, Lord. Reveal your will on earth as it is in heaven. That when we pray, God opens our eyes to what he's doing in the world and shows us hurting people that need his touch. And ever since I realized this, that if Jesus, he's the one, right, guys, that we're supposed to emulate in all things, that if we pray like Jesus, we should regularly pray, Lord, show me today what you're doing in the world. Help me to see my world, my circumstances, and others as you do today with the eyes of Christ. And I'll tell you, if we learn to pray this way, you can test this hypothesis. You'll quickly discover what I've discovered personally, that Jesus sees things very, very, very differently than you and I tend to typically see things. Case in point, I I love this story in John chapter 4, where the gospel writer recounts the story of Jesus and his encounter with a woman from Samaria at Jacob's well. For those of you who are familiar with the story, you'll remember that Jesus has gone out of his way to travel through Samaria with his disciples. Good Jewish uh, people really didn't hang out with Samarians whatsoever. There was racial tensions between those two groups, but Jesus has made a beeline uh, through Samaria, and he has this encounter with this woman where uh, he shares the gospel with her while his disciples have gone into the nearest town to go get lunch and groceries. And so in John chapter 4, if you turn to John chapter 5, just turn to the left and look at how Jesus' disciples respond when they see Jesus talking to this woman with a sordid past. We'll just jump in at verse 27. Look at this. I love this. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back and they marveled. This isn't like a good marveling. (laughs) They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I had ever did. Can this not be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him, to Jesus. Meanwhile, I love this. The disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Rabbi, eat. I, I, I love this. Th- this encounter right here, it's such a human story. Um, what did the disciples see? D- don't think for a moment what Jesus saw. What do you think the disciples saw when they came back from going to get lunch and getting groceries for Jesus? That's the mission they could handle at this point in the gospel story. They're going to get food, they were hungry. They went into the town. I can see them coming back, you know, with with sandwiches or something. And they see see this encounter going down. And what they see, actually, and this is what's hilarious to me, is an awkward situation that they must rescue Jesus from. They have to save Jesus. So in their mind... (laughs) Whenever you think, like, I need to save Jesus, you've gone, you've gone off track, by the way. But I love this. They try to, like, break the awkward tension, like, that's happening here. And so they're, they're thinking in their mind, does somebody want to say something? And one of them just goes, you know, Rabbi, you should eat <laughs> r- right now. You should have a sandwich because you don't know what you're doing or who you're talking to. If you knew this woman and her past and her reputation, you would not be actually sitting next to her right now and talking to her. So let us help you, you take the sandwich and we'll get things like back on course. That's what the disciples see, is an awkward situation with this woman with a shameful, sordid past. They need to rescue Jesus from this awkward moment. What does Jesus see? sees a hurting woman who has experienced j- just a catalog of wound after wound. See somebody that, that's helpless and harassed and really scared. Not like a sheep without a shepherd, disoriented, confused, vulnerable, And so with great words of grace, Jesus, Jesus shares the good news that there's hope and there's healing for people like her. And she drops her water pot. And in a stunning twist in the story, this woman that Jesus shows compassion to, he shares the gospel with, she becomes the first missionary in John's gospel. To Samaria. Goes into the town and says, come see a man who knows my story, who knows everything that I did, and and he shared grace with me. This is the Christ. This must be the Christ. And the town of Samaria, Samaritan after Samaritan, came out to see Jesus. His disciples saw a sinful woman. Jesus saw a woman whose heart was ripe for harvest. And to correct his disciples, to help them see that they don't see with his eyes what's really happening here. Jesus continues the discussion after they say, Rabbi, you should have a sandwich. You don't know what you're doing. It's right there in verse 32. Look at what Jesus says. But he turns, he said to his disciples, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. So the disciples, they still don't get it. They said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? (laughs) They're not getting it. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now listen to this. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. And you have entered into that labor. Jesus saw this hurting woman, but he also saw a harvest opportunity in this conversation. And so he told his disciples, and don't say in three months the harvest will be ready or, or there's no harvest open your eyes. If you see like I see, you'll see that the the fields are white for harvest. Already the great and almighty God has gone into our world and he sowed seeds that just need to be gathered and reaped before they spoil. So that's your job. So as we pray this way, we should constantly ask the Lord, Lord, show me Not only the hurt that others are carrying, but show me the harvest work that you're doing in the world, Lord. Show me what you see and lead me. Give me the courage to respond. Because you see, seeing is not enough. It's not enough to just see our hurting world with the eyes of Christ. Which is why we need the next lesson that Jesus passed on to his disciples in this passage. After seeing our hurting world with the eyes of Christ, lesson number two is this. Prayer allows us to love our hurting world with the heart of Christ. Prayer actually tunes our heart to God's heart for our hurting world. And so back in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 36, the gospel writer recounts and he says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Time and time again in the gospels, when Jesus sees crowds of hurting people, his response is always immediately compassion. Compassion. The Greek word for compassion, splunknizdomai, splunknizdomai, It's fun to learn Greek words. That's a fun one. Splunknizdomai. It comes from the root word, a noun, splunkna, which is your gut. It's your gut. It's your bowels. And what Splunk nisdomai, compassion actually means is to be stirred or moved in your gut. That's compassion. And when you see the word compassion in the Bible, God is constantly describing Himself as a compassionate God whose heart goes out to the world. You just need to know that that world, word it literally means to be stirred or moved in your inwardmost parts, to be stirred to the gut. Have you ever walked alongside someone that's going through a painful situation that's so visceral that what they're going through and the pain that you see, it just moves you to the core and twists up your insides? You ever had that happen before? It happens to me all the time. Years ago, I remember um, while I was with a team team, of business leaders from our church that were going to Rwanda to help a ministry called These Numbers Have Faces um, launch an entrepreneurship uh, school, an academy to help uh, business leaders, Christian business leaders in Rwanda um, start jobs. We, we were going and it was our inaugural trip. And many of the students that were actually going to participate in this Accelerate Summit um, they had come from a refugee camp up north in Rwanda called Gihembe. Now, I had, never been, I had never been at the time to a refugee camp. And when we drove into Gihembe, to be honest with you, nothing could have prepared me for what I saw and the stories that I heard. It, it just moved me and it got me in my gut. And one of the stories that, that honestly, it, it just haunted me is I got to hang out with our translator whose name was Claude. As we drove out of um, Gehenbe Refugee Camp, that's Claude right there and his mother athlete. Claude told me his story that 20 years ago in, in Congo, him and his family, like so many refugees... Uh, in Gehambay, they were forced to leave their home one night when the inter militia came through and began slaughtering people, one of which was his father. And so Claude and his three sisters and his mother, Athelie, fled for their lives that night under the cover of dark, and they made it by God's grace, like dodging bullets and barely making it out of there. They made it to uh, the border crossing of Rwanda, they got refugee status and they moved into Gehembe. Gehembe is a hurting place. No running water, um, no systems for sewage. This refugee camp uh, has been there for over 20 years. Refugee camps are not designed to sustain communities for that long. So uh, imagine the squalor and the smell. This is where Claude and his family lived when I met him. Claude had dreams of, of going to, to university and becoming a teacher, but those dreams were abandoned as his mom um, became very, very, very ill, and he himself got very, very, very ill. Life in Gehenbe was so hard that he had really abandoned hope of going to university until a leader named Scovia from These Numbers Have Faces met Claude. Um, he was actually dying of starvation at the time that she that, uh that she met him, and, uh, and he was accepted into their program. Claude is in- incredibly bright. He has one of the most tender hearts I think I've, I've ever seen before, and he worked hard like so many Rwandans, so many Congolese do. This guy hustled. He got perfect marks, went through college, but still there wasn't many opportunities in Gehembe. And so when Claude told me his story, I I prayed for Claude, for his dreams and for his passions. He wanted to to pray for his sick mom, Ashley, and he wanted to continue his education and become a teacher. When I came home from that trip and and flew home, something about that experience in Gehembe refugee camp, it stuck with me. God had stirred my heart in a way where I just couldn't turn it off. And as I continued to pray... I began praying that our church, River West, would be the kind of community that would welcome refugees like Claude if they were ever resettled here in our city. As I prayed, I realized that my heart was not the only heart that was stirred. That's how the Lord works. And I began praying with some close friends of mine, leaders here, um, leaders from other churches in our city, and we launched a ministry called the Refugee Care Collective that partners with um, all three resettlement agencies in our city to welcome refugees at the airport, airport to fill their home uh, with restart kits. We leased a warehouse, and this thing is just its stockpiled with restart kits that many of you donated, and they go to, to, to refugees in our city. Last year, I got a phone call that a 26-year-old Congolese young man and his mother were being resettled. All that we got was their alien ID numbers. Um, We didn't get names at the time. And uh, Lutheran Community Services asked if if myself and our community group, if we would mentor and support um, this young 26 year old Congolese guy and his mom. I began praying our community group agreed and felt like God was stirring our heart to enter into that space and welcome them not knowing that the 26-year-old guy that would be arriving here at the airport with his mom was Claude. It was Claude. This was, this was, I had been in his home in Gehembe. Like, we had prayed together. And when he arrived, we both lost it. This was like a shot, like, right here from when I just showed up, like, with tubs and restart kits, like, at his apartment. We helped them find some housing in North Portland. He showed up and we both began crying. I said, Claude? I had no, no idea. So we, we've been supporting Claude, hanging out with him for the last year. Uh, he works at the Ace Hotel downtown in downtown Portland. He has like this rad job. Everybody loves Claude. He's like a superstar at the Ace Hotel. Portland hipsters think that he's like the coolest thing in the world. He is. And so it's, it's amazing. I love Claude's story. Love it. I got to hang out this last Monday. This is a highlight of my life, like right here. Uh, Claude and I, we got to go to the Oregon coast on a cloudless day on Monday, and I got to take Claude salmon fishing, which, which I have an obsession. We prayed. We prayed. I prayed for Claude. He had never been fishing before. He, he caught a salmon, um, I mean, I wish you could have seen him. He started dancing, like, with the fish and stuff. He almost, like, lost it back in the river. It was amazing. Um, he started dancing and, like, praising the Lord. It was amazing. It was a perfect day. And then uh, Claude said, are we close to the ocean? And I said, yeah. Yeah, we're, like, 15 minutes away from the ocean, man. Um, and he says, i would never been to the ocean before. And I was like... Okay, we're, we're going to the ocean. <laughs> and so we drove to Pacific City, and then this happened. Uh, picture number two right there. We caught it right at sunset and, and prayed together right there and thanked the Lord for a great Sabbath day together on Monday. Now, why am I telling that story? One, it's amazing. I love it. Uh, but the, the, honestly, um, none of that would have happened if we didn't worship and pray to a compassionate God who hear, hears us, when our people cry out. Guys, and that point of that is not, Pastor Christopher is a compassionate guy. I'm really not. Um, as I prayed, the Lord gives me windows into his heart, and there's times I say, yes, I'm, I'm up for that. There's times I say no, because I'm too afraid. When you pray, the Lord will make your heart like Christ. And you'll see awesome and crazy things that will boggle your mind if you just say, Lord, let me see what you see. Give me the eyes of Christ. And Lord, give me the heart of Christ. Stir my heart with things that stir your heart, Lord. Pray that way. And then report to me. Share the stories. That'll change, revolutionize, like, your prayer life. I can guarantee you. It'll revolutionize our church. Lastly, where does all this lead? As we pray and we say, Lord, open up my eyes. Show me what you see. Lord, give me your heart. Help me to love like you love. I need the heart of Christ. It all leads to lesson number three, our final lesson. It leads us. Prayer sends us into our hurting world with the power of Christ. It sends us. That's why in verse 37 of Matthew the last couple of verses here Jesus turns to his disciples and says the harvest is plentiful laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest For the last 10 years I've been praying This same prayer. And today, I'm asking you to join me in praying this for our church. When we see our hurting world and the overwhelming need, there is only one thing we can do that has any hope of bringing Christ's healing to bear on our hurting world, and it's to pray to the Lord of the harvest, which is not us. It's not us. It's Jesus. And as we, we pray with open eyes and stirred hearts, here's what will happen. You and I will become the answer to that prayer. The harvest is plentiful. And the laborers are right here. <laughs> They're right here. In fact, that's Jesus' whole point. I want you to notice something, that the very same disciples that Jesus says to pray this way to the Lord of the harvest, that he might send laborers into his harvest field, look at what Matthew includes right after that prayer in chapter 10. It's, it's plain as day. Uh, he called to him his 12 disciples in ten one and gave them authority, power over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles are, are these. And then we have the apostles right there. And the rest of the chapter, Jesus is sending them out with his power to do the same things that Jesus' disciples have seen him do. Go around, preach the gospel, and heal people. Heal people. Have compassion on them. You are the answer to Christ's prayer. And so as we pray, I'm going to have the worship team come up here right now. As you pray and you say, Lord, open my eyes. Show me what you see. Stir my heart, Lord, for the things that stir your heart. And Lord, send me out. The Lord will show you right in your life right now. The harvest is plentiful, and it's right under your nose. You don't have to go overseas. It's right in front of you, in your family, in your workplace, in your community group. Jesus, our great Lord of the harvest, is at work, River West. And this morning, we get to celebrate that truth in the most appropriate way possible. We get to come to the communion table. This morning as a community. When we hold the elements of communion in our hands, the bread and the cup, it reminds us the lengths that Jesus, our great Lord of the harvest, went to bring hope and healing to every hurting heart and to you and I. That his body, like a grain of wheat, it was broken. And buried in the ground so that we might have life. Life. Jesus was killed on a cross so that we, like sheep who have all gone astray, might have a Savior who hears every uttered prayer.